insatiable listeners. Welcome to the second episode of season 14, where we are talking about all things alcohol in midlife with the incredible Laura McGowan. Laura is a best-selling author, leading sobriety thinker, and now, with this episode, three-time insatiable guest. One of the many reasons I keep having Laura back on is her rare ability to somehow both keep us connected to our emotions and simultaneously rise above them. This allows an acknowledgement of what is happening, but also to rise above it so that we can make, can name it and have the healing begin. You'll see what I'm talking about when you listen to this episode. Of course, it also helps that she's the real deal and an incredible person. I also appreciate that Laura understands alcohol and body image issues have deeper root causes and that she speaks from deeply rooted personal experience. With about 50% of my clients now being sober, I understand how many women struggle with alcohol. And I also know perimenopause and menopause can bring up all your stuff. So I had Laura on to speak to why this stage of life puts pressure on sobriety, can trigger a relapse, or, for many women, can increase their drinking. We'll discuss alcohol's effects on perimenopause and menopause symptoms and overall health. Beyond the conversation on alcohol, however, what really stuck with me days after we recorded was our discussion around the spiritual reckoning that comes with midlife, the surprising grief in some cases, but also the opportunities. Before we begin, I should also probably clarify something because I know these types of conversations and labels could be charged for some listeners. In this conversation, I talk about the extreme thinking around food, and I label it as diet culture and body positivity. But what I'm really talking about are the diet culture and anti-diet culture extremes, in which body positivity is usually in an anti-diet culture bucket. This came up in the context of Laura sharing how past body image issues have resurfaced for her and what she's done to change her eating and exercising to feel better, including the mindset shift that's supporting her now. One key nutrition shift for Laura has been to focus on blood sugar because it affects so many perimenopause and menopause symptoms and your health. If that's a topic that interests you, I invite you to my next Find Your Flow When It's All in Flux salon on Wednesday, January 10th. In this free gathering, I'll teach you about blood sugar control so you can cut through all the nutrition noise and overwhelm. I'll provide a nervous system framework that can guide you as a starting point for what foods may work best for you. Join us at alishapiro.com backslash flow. Now on to our show with Laura McGowan, the author of the best-selling memoir, We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life, and Push Off From Here, Nine Essential Truths to Get You Through Life and Everything Else. She also writes the excellent substack titled Love Story, and in 2020, she founded The Luckiest Club, a global sobriety support community. Now, on to the show. So, welcome back, Laura. You are one of Insatiable's, like, top guests. So, I'm so grateful that you came back to talk all things perimenopause and menopause. Yeah, any time. I love talking to you. (laughs) So you have an excellent Substack love story. 
It's one of the few I pay for. I recommend everyone. Thank you. I'm <laughs> a contributor. You've been sharing how you have been perimenopause for a few years, you believe. Mm-hmm. Do you have any updates around that in addition yeah. to what you shared there? I definitely am. I know that. It's not like a, is this happening or is this not? Am, am I Am I or am I not? Updates. I have started to, well, I, I got like blood work, more extensive blood work done. I'm starting to pay attention to things I was never paying attention to before and to look at the way I eat, especially differently based on having a, a perimenopausal body. So I, I've, for example, and the way I exercise, I have, I read Stacy, Dr. Stacy Sims books, which I found to be super helpful. I know you also talked to her having her on. Yeah. And I found her to be extremely helpful in understanding that this, the impact of hormones on how we eat, how our bodies respond to exercise, sleep, really every part of our functioning. But as someone who has always exercised and been an athlete my whole life and tries to I'm on a continual journey with how I eat to support myself and to not be super rigid about it, but also to support my brain and the 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 things I need to do and want to do and the energy levels I want to have and and the life I want to have i have learned, I have learned that I've been doing a lot of things sort of wrong for this phase of my life. And that's kind of where I am today. It's, I'm definitely in a super learning mode. I don't have the symptoms that I have. I I haven't experienced a ton of hot flashes. I've had sporadic. So that's great because I, I can only imagine what that's going to be like for me. I'm a hot person (laughs) and hot anyway. So I look look to that as being probably one of the worst things, but I'm not super into that yet. I had to get an IUD, sort of manage the way that my period changed, the way that the symptoms they got. That's probably the biggest area where I felt a significant change was my periods got really irregular. They were intense. The cramps especially but the bleeding was so heavy i always had a very like kind of regular no big deals period and it it got to be a very big deal and it was it would take me out for a week and a half two weeks because i would also have migraines afterwards and so i got an iud about 6 months ago that's helped a lot so i'm just like in this big learning phase and trying to be nice to myself through the process cuz it's very frustrating <sighs> I love that you asked that because I have some questions coming up about yeah. how, how you're relating yourself differently. Yeah, I love that you balance that fine line of like how I've been exercising eating has been like what works pretty much before won't work now. And I think so many of us, we grew up, especially us being Gen Xers, mm. we grew up around food and exercise conversation was in the weight loss, like meaning matrix. But I really think now at this time, we have to take it to the health. Like this has to be about health. And I've noticed so many menopause resources don't even want to touch diet. 
It's like, it's like if you say anything, you're becoming diet culture. And I'm like, but it's so important to manage symptoms. And, but we have to break it out of like a truly health. So I love that you connected it to your brain and like sleeping. And th- that was my yeah. experience too. I, well, it's that it happened out of necessity because you, you really hit a wall. I hit a wall with, okay. All the things that worked before really aren't working. So it kind of, and I, I'm not just impacted a little bit, I'm impacted a lot. Like I don't feel good anymore. And so it do, it becomes about health because it kind of has to, but then also it becomes about health because I think it's just a product of getting older. I, you know, I'm like, am I really going to go? So if I put on some weight, Am I really going to go through the process of what I went through in my teens and 20s and 30s to try to like fight my body? Or am I going to genuinely look at this through a different lens? And it's a, but it's continually challenging for me. It's not, it's not easy. Yeah. No, it's not. I'm also curious. I related so much for to you saying about the exhaustion and the fatigue and cutting back mm-hmm. on work. Have you, like, I'm through menopause now, but I have not picked up my pre, like, perimenopause, menopause pace. Like, I just can't because of I cortisol. I hope you never do. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. No, no, I look back on that and I'm like, who was I? I mean, it is such a dramatic transformation when you just can't push because you don't have progesterone and estrogen to and some testosterone to help you. So are you yeah. still slowing down? And- yeah, for sure. I would say I am the, feel the same way. I'm not through menopause. I could be in perimenopause for another five years or more. I don't know. But I have slowed down a lot. I, instead of, I look at my work window as as very short during the day. The the part of the the day that I'm functional and like on and my brain's working well is really about eight to like noon. And that's real. That's just what I can do. And I, of course, I have all kinds of other things that I do in, you know, before then and after then that involve family and my daughter and home stuff, but I keep it really like light. And I, I don't overschedule myself anymore. I don't do a bunch of meetings. I don't, I'm really much more mindful of that. And I, it's also, that has been an evolving process of just learning, of coming more into my career at, at this stage, accepting a concept of enough, enough money, enough success, enough book sales, enough, whatever it is. I'm not just ambitious for the sake of ambition anymore. And that is something that just happened. It doesn't feel, I had to make choices, but it doesn't, it feels like it's been a product of probably hormones in the background. Just like, I don't have that same rar that I used to. Yeah, I totally hear that. In fact, this is going to be a question for later on, but I'll, I'll ask you it now is that I find that some of the stuff that we haven't or have worked through resurfaces in midlife. And for me, I didn't have my food to, I I don't have food issues anymore, but I had to address my last vice, which was overworking. (laughs) Uh And a big part of that was the story attached to my overworking was like, in order to be successful, I need to be exceptional. And so I have to work really, really hard. And to change that story, I had to really get clear on what is enough, what 
and around money and we're both self-employed. So that's like a mm-hmm. tricky, the boundaries are a lot bigger than if you're in a corporate job or a nonprofit. Totally. And it was like really being like, am, am I going to let this control me? Like this and need to like always work so hard. But what has come up for you that maybe you were avoiding or mm-hmm. has resurfaced? Because sometimes other, you Things know, come back. Yeah, yeah. The work thing for sure. That I don't know that that resurfaced. It's it was new for me. <laughs> okay, so you didn't recognize that you were overworking, and and it was really. And I was in postpartum the same time I was in menopause because of I had. Oh my gosh. I know <laughs> it was like three years of like the abyss. Oh my gosh! But I just couldn't keep it up. And I kept trying to and failing. Mm -hmm. And so I use my own truce with food process because it's really stubborn change of like, why are you feeling so awful that you can't work more? Why do you think you have to? Like, this part of this is your own, like, making. Like, what part do you have control over it? So it was the first time where I physically couldn't just override my body's needs to just continue working. <laughs> yeah. And then in hindsight, you look back and you go, wow, that was a problem. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That was that was filling some yeah. thing in me. Yeah. yeah. Well, for me, it was like I was bullied for my weight. I was a late bloomer. So I know that early on I was like, well, if I'm not going to be the pretty like princess, I'm going to be the smart, successful, ambitious mm-hmm. one. You know, mm-hmm. so it was like, okay, that was, you know, but yeah. I didn't realize to what degree it influenced hardworking because everyone encourages you to be hardworking. Yes. You know? Yeah. And it's it's really, there's also nothing wrong with hard work, but it's it's hard to figure out what's healthy and functional. Yeah. And when does it make sense or when does it make sense to slow down? Like having flexibility rather than I just always have to be working. Right. And, and feeling anxiety when you just take off the, 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 release the pedal a little bit of your effort and feeling, feeling anxiety about that, feeling like you're not doing enough, feeling like there's something wrong. You're not contributing. You're not as much of a person. You're not special. Yeah. I don't think mine, I'm sure part of this has been tied tied to, I know part of it has been tied to menopause. Like I talked about, I just can't go as much as I used to, but that isn't something that resurfaced really. It's more, I I have been constantly evaluating that part of myself since I got sober, really, mm. I would say. The part of me that has a tendency to overwork, that very much I over-identifies with my work personality, my work persona. And and that's just been a constant evolution, but it it didn't resurface. Body issues resurfaced. Oh. Yeah. Eating, disordered eating, not like I didn't, I didn't have like flares of an eating disorder, but I had, I returned to a place with eating and monitoring of my body that I hadn't been doing, oh my gosh, since my 30s, early 30s, because my body started to change in ways that I like couldn't manage doing the things that I had been doing. And and I started to freak out about that. So, and I'm I would say I'm kind of in that right now, like figuring that out, 
doing different things. I started weightlifting about a year and a half ago. That was really a result of that. It was like, I, I, I'm exhausted for one, and I don't want to run anymore. My body will not run anymore, which was my thing for so long. All these movements kind of, it's almost like when you get pregnant and like chicken taste, can't eat chicken, you can't have coffee. Your body just rejects it. My body just started rejecting certain forms of exercise. It just like, nope, we're, that's over. And so I started to explore other things, but I also was doing it to like try to figure out how can I stop my body from changing in ways that I don't want it to change. Yeah. And how did you navigate that? Because we were talking about like polarized thinking before we hopped on here. And I find that in the diet, like, so for so long, we've had diet culture and then body positivity, which is basically like restriction or eat whatever you want. And I find that menopause is this reckoning time of the middle path, which is what we do in Truce with Food, which is how do we make food about health, not about even about all this like restriction or eat whatever you want, but really the the moderate middle. because. Yeah. So how are you balancing making it about health and not just about weight? Because I don't know. I'm in that right now. That. I don't have like a clean answer. I bet in maybe a year or two, I would have a better ability to look back. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do know a few things. I I started like doing things that I hadn't done in so long stepping on a scale. I had to like go find this a scale, like the scale. I don't even have I didn't even have it. I didn't weed myself for years and then there I am scale every morning. Thinking about food as like the impact it's going to have on my weight. I noticed that I started doing that versus just eating and like seeing how I felt. And so I had to kind of go to the extreme a little bit and then realize and remember how not good that feels for me, how restrictive and tight and unhelpful and consuming that is for me, and then to bring it back to the middle. And the middle looks, it's tricky because I also, if you are experiencing real hormonal changes, you have to educate yourself about the way food impacts your hormones. And so you do have to watch and notice and monitor at least for a while so that it's like I had to re-educate myself again on food through a different lens. And that lens for me was, okay, how wh how do foods impact my glu glucose, like blood glucose? Because that is what I learned is like, a challenge for a lot of people in menopause is you don't your hormones change such that you your blood sugar gets dysregulated and and you know this but like dysregulated blood sugar is the cause of all kinds of problems it, or and if it goes way up and way down if you're having all kinds of spikes i mean that affects your energy it affects your sleep it affects everything so i was like okay rather than calories or macros or you know any other measure of food I'm going to just look at how foods impact my blood sugar and try to keep it at that. And that has been a place where I can find a little equilibrium because I am paying attention to what I eat, but through this particular lens. I love that you said that because that's what we do in Truth With Food. It's like 
Is you're it? Gonna, it makes yeah. so much <laughs> it's like I give people two different experiments of just two different types of meals. And then I have them track their energy, their anxiety, their focus. And so you're tying it to health and those immediate wins rather than like weight. So because people start to realize that like 50% of their emotional eating is actually deregulated blood sugar, which is what you're describing. And you've said that to me. I've heard you say that. <laughs> but I, I, I wasn't experiencing enough pain from the way I was eating to really make a change. I mean, I would at times, we've talked about sugar, you and I before, and yeah. I've had problems with sugar. And I, I would address that, but through kind of through the wrong lens. Yeah, yeah. Like, I would, yeah, I just, and I, again, I wasn't experiencing enough of the the pain to really approach it differently. And I felt, I feel so much, there's also, I swear, there's like a spiritual reckoning that ha- that happens in these years. It's not just physical, it's not just emotional and your moods, it's spiritual, like, I I think Brene Brown talks about something about midlife being like the point where you you have a reckoning where you're like, is this like we're not fucking around anymore? For the first time in my life, I've been actually aware of my mor- mortality. Like I think about dying. Yeah, I never thought about dying, but I think about dying. The fact that I'm going to die. The fact that I only have a certain amount of time left. The fact that my daughter is 14 and she's going to be out of the house and. And I'm thinking about this like second half of life. And that causes this very, this causes a spiritual shift or it has for me. 100%. And I wonder, has anything, one thing that came up for me, like I said, I was postpartum and went through early menopause at the same time because of my cancer treatments. But I had to like, I thought I was kind of worked through my history of, cancer and all the eating issues it caused and health issues. But I felt there was kind of this grief of like, oh, postpartum was so hard for me because of what the cancer treatments actually did. And okay, you're not going to have the protective benefits of estrogen for eight years that other people do. And kind of reckoning with like everything else up until that point, I'd been able to reverse. I I healed my gut. I It got it was an invitation, the pain into creating truce with food and understanding the deepest roots of emotional eating. But I found this, this like spiritual grieving and reckoning. Did you, have you found anything about that with your alcohol use or sobriety yet? Oh yeah. I mean, that happened. That's like a part of the recovery process. that's rarely ever talked about, but, but what I realized I was going through pretty early on a, a period of deep grief about the future that I wouldn't have that I imagined I would have as a drinking person no matter how romanticized and fantasy like it was I had to grieve that I had to grieve the identity of being a drinker and all the things that I thought it would bring me and that was a, a total spiritual reckoning for sure, a grief process. And once I understood that that's what it was, and once I named it as that, it I, it changed things for me because I gave myself, you know, we, we need permission to, and we need, we need to feel valid in our experience. And 
that is something that definitely happened to me through sobriety. It's not a, I, I talk about it a bit in my second book and push off from here that we, it's, it's in this, the chapter called It's Unfair That This Is Your Thing because there, we have like a, a grief matrix in our culture around who's allowed to experience grief and who we acknowledge grief for and who we don't. And then there are levels within that, you know, of, of who gets the most grief. Like if your parents die and they're elderly, they're in their 90s, say it's like, yeah, of course you're going to grieve, but that's a, a lesser grief than a, than a chi- child dying, for example. There are all kinds of things that we give permission for folks to grieve for, and we understand it, and we acknowledge that. And that's an important part of the process as a human to being able to process your grief is that it is validated and acknowledged and accepted. But for something like the example of giving up alcohol, like an addiction, there's about zero allotment Mm. of grief or compassion for that loss if people even see it as a loss, because this is something that we have, we still have it on a moral issue for one, but also like you're usually, people usually see it as you're like hurting other people when you're doing it. And it's also hurting you. So why would you be grieving something that it that it looks on the outside to be so clearly destructive? Another analogy would be someone who is in an abusive relationship. Why would they feel grief about this? Why would it be hard to grieve something that is so ruinous and destructive? So this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's important because there there is, I think, an equivalent grieving that goes on in perimenopause and menopause. Because you're grieving the person that you were, the ideas that you had about life, about your body, about your femininity, about your sexuality, about your kids. I mean, who knows? It includes everything. Your personality, because you've experienced these these states of mind that are so different. And I, I mean, how many women say, I just, I don't even recognize myself. I don't even know who who this person is. Right. And so there's this whole grief process, of course, that we have to go through. And, but if it's not acknowledged, like my mom never talked about menopause. It was like, she's like, yeah, I guess it was okay. Like, I don't know. I just, I don't know. We just kind of went through it. And every woman of her generation has said the same thing. I've never heard a woman my mom's age talk about it in any way that felt real to what I, I'm experiencing and certainly what my friends have experienced who have gone all the way through it. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, the answer is there. I have felt that spiritual reckoning grief process in sobriety. And I think it, it absolutely applies here for menopause, but it's so not understood or appreciated or acknowledged in culture. It isn't. And I think especially in America where, you know, we, we most of us grow up, you can be anything, you can do anything. And it's like at this stage, you've made choices that have closed certain doors like, you know, yeah. and or like I part of being going through menopause early, my own grief was like, 
I was essentially choosing to have one child by starting later in life, but I didn't know that because of yeah. the cancer risk. And so it was like, oh, that that biological door is shut, you know? And so it's like this, like the sifting of like, to your point, even like closed doors, I guess, not just our bodies and our beauty and all that stuff, although that's important to acknowledge so much, but also- I think you're so right. Like the 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 myth of like, you can do anything, be anything. It's like, you have to reckon with reality. Like, no. Yeah. Yeah. And we all knew, like, I knew I was never going to be a basketball player, right? Like, that was like, okay. No, but that's not the things. Those aren't the doors. It's like a more of a metaphorical thing. Yes. Like, like, oh, all these doors are, I don't have every option available to me anymore. The future is not totally wide open anymore. I mean, that's part of thinking about my mortality for sure. Yes. Is just, oh, this is limited. Yeah. I'm not, I don't get to go on forever. I don't. And as a, I'm an Enneagram seven and that's kind of a devastating thought experience to have that, you, that the future is not wide open. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. <sighs> so I'm going to switch to, with all of this coming up and I want to switch more to alcohol. So, okay. A study published in 2017 in JAMA Psychiatry, they were examining the drinking habits of adults between U.S. adults between 2001 and 2013 and found that high-risk alcohol use, specifically women consuming four or more drinks in a day on a weekly basis, rose about 58%. Mm -hmm. And while men drink more than women, research indicates that gap in the genders is narrowing. And women who were not excessive drinkers were more likely to transition to excessive drinking in the early perimenopause and postmenopause stages. And then I DM'd you this, that a book I was reading, they said a 2021 Finnish study found that one telltale sign of menopause that was in one telltale tell, tell sign that menopause was imminent was participants, women increased their alcohol consumption. And then you wrote that about 75% of the people in your communities are between 50 to 75. And you said, I used to think it was because alcohol had run its course, but instead I've become increasingly convinced that the hormonal changes caused by perimenopause and menopause are a far bigger catalyst for onset and progression of alcohol use disorder than anyone realizes. So what do you think is happening at this transition that is causing so many women to start drinking, relapse, or increase how much they drink? What are you noticing in the women around you going through this stage of life? Yeah, I'm so glad we're talking about this. I'm obviously not a doctor. I can't speak to the exact science, but I can speak to the sort of psychological things that I see. Some of... We've talked about a bunch of factors already, this sort of an ambiguous grief, it's called, where you you feel a lot of grief, but it doesn't have, you know, you can't say, well, it's about this one thing. That it, That's really painful and really stressful. And people, we, we seek relief when we're in pain. Kids leave the house. So a lot of times women in my community, they will be in that transition period where their kids have already left or 
they left a few years ago, and that's when they noticed that their drinking really ramped up. And it typically coincides with menopause. And so you've got this empty nest thing going on where there's just a lot less to do. You, a lot of people who put their primary identity or significant part of their identity into parenting now have to reconfigure their sense of identity because that is just so different. There's a lot of mourning that goes on there. I'm not saying it's this way for everybody because some people are weather it differently, but a lot of people feel grief around that and sadness and sort of uselessness and depression. And similar to the period of life when you become a mom and drinking ramps up around with your peers, drinking ramps up at that age Mm. group too, because they're getting together more socially. They have more time on their hands. They have more time for social things. They have time to take big trips. Their kids aren't home. So they aren't doing the things that you do that sort of create the scaffolding around your life when you are an active parent of of younger, you know, you're you're always a parent, but your, your kids aren't at home anymore. And so you're not doing all those things that you were, you, 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 like even just the fact that there's these other people in your home and you're paying attention to them, that's not there. And so your, your attention, you just have this void. A lot of people do start drinking out of boredom. Mm. A lot of people start drinking out of, from depression. And obviously these are these feelings and conditions can all be exacerbated extremely by hormones. So you're in this huge shift in how your your hormones, the hormone levels in your body and decreased levels of estrogen, for example, can cause so many issues in the body and also mentally, anxiety, depression, and so on. And so it's like this perfect storm of things that are happening, but but people aren't putting necessarily putting it together with, oh, these are contributing to me reaching for a drink, right? They're just doing it more. And some folks may have had a predisposition to addiction already and they just didn't know it. And mm. some folks just get drinking, just alcohol does what it does and it's an addictive substance. So they become very addicted quickly. And so- there's there's all of that going on. A lot of people will just plain report that, and these are other people's words, not mine. They they just start to feel crazy. Mm. They start to feel like out of their body, like their life didn't fit anymore. Like like I hate my job. I hate my spouse. I hate my home. I hate everything, and I don't know why. I just hate. I have rage, and they use alcohol to medicate. It is an accessible, socially acceptable thing to do. It's the easiest thing to do. And sometimes people who didn't even have a taste for alcohol will start to drink because their tastes change, like literally their body changes. And so they're like, oh, okay, I'm a wine drinker now. I actually like wine. I look at it very much akin to the phenomenon of motherhood bringing on drinking with all those hormonal changes and the drastic life changes that happen to the the change that happens in menopause is just different circumstances. It's so interesting that you said the rage because when 
the Israel-Hamas war broke off, broke out, I did a grief circle for just the grief we were all feeling. And I brought mm-hmm. in Stacey Ramsauer, who is a somatic experiencing practitioner. And in the grief circle, she opened it up by saying, if you don't have a whole healthy container for someone to witness your grief, it goes to anger. Mm-hmm. And then if you don't have someone to help you with your anger, which is really unresolved grief, and you don't have that healthy, whole, sacred container, it becomes rage. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about your— 100%. It's like this grief. Mm-hmm. We don't know—we probably don't even have a name for it. Like you said, being able to give it a name in sobriety helped you understand what it was. And then you don't have the hormonal buffers, like exactly. even not having progesterone— and and women are already twice as likely to struggle with mood disorders like anxiety yes, and depression. So exactly. it's like this crockpot of yeah. The rage is really fascinating. I mean that's that's a well documented, well told story throughout history is women going quote unquote mad in these years. And you know again I don't know the science of it but I can just you you if you even if you look at like you know, the story of like the crone, that the phase of the women's life where they become a crone or an elder, there's a the story of the crone. There's many things, but one of them is sh- like not presenting a false self anymore. Yeah. And so they just, and, and I think personally that anger is like the mechanism that you need to get yourself there. Because if you're not going to put on a false front anymore, if you're not going to pretend anymore, I mean, you'll often see women stop wearing makeup, shaving their hair, going gray, just dropping this whole thing, this performance of beauty that they they just can't do it anymore. And I think you have to have a, anger is this sort of, I mean, anger exists to protect your boundaries. It exists to restore your sense of self. And I think there's in that this period of time, the the anger comes up because women are looking around and going, I can't tolerate the things that I was able to tolerate. I can't tolerate the dysfunction in my marriage. I can't tolerate my home. I can't tolerate my this career that I that I was just like swallowing and forcing myself to do. It just doesn't fit anymore. And there there has to be a mechanism to push you through that. So that you reclaim this new identity or claim this new identity, this sort of crone phase of your life, second half of life, afternoon of life. There's different words in different, you know, realms of psychology and philosophy. But <clears throat> I think the rage has to come up, but it's also very deeply uncomfortable for women to feel rage and to feel anger. And if you don't know how to do that and you don't know how to process it, which most people don't, you're going to medicate that. Yeah. It doesn't present well to the outside world. It doesn't feel great. It's scary. And so you're going to reach for something. You're going to reach for something and alcohol's there. Yeah. As you go through perimenopause, how is it wrapped it in your continued sobriety since you're mm-hmm. not using that? Do you think that it's made this transition easier or are there any ways that you can imagine that not drinking has made perimenopause more challenging? Mm. Well, I can't think of any ways that it's not drinking has made it more challenging. No, I think I feel extremely fortunate that I stopped drinking in my late 30s because I can only imagine how much harder it would be to go through this and try to get sober. 
I'm very grateful. I don't have to do that. I just caught like <gasps> my breath just caught thinking of that. And I know so many women are do it who are having to do that. I don't think I'm far enough into to have total perspective on this yet, but I think that sobriety, getting sober prepared me for any major life transition. So it it is certainly helpful with this because I know how to be with myself. Mm. I know how to I have a lot of tools. I have a lot of community. I have a lot of, I know what works for me. And and I also have a lot of really healthy habits built up because I can't get unwell. I've just had to learn new habits. I've had to just shift some of my old ones and learn new ones, both because the, the way that I was doing certain things, like I said, with eating and exercising just wasn't working the same way. And because some of the things that I used to do just don't, they don't fit my life anymore, but I, it's only helped. Yeah. The, the other side of that. So we've talked about why people would go towards drinking, but it also, there's the other side of what, what alcohol does to the body and the mind that would just exacerbate all of this, this, right? Alcohol is a depressant. Alcohol impacts your health in really significant ways. So people who are already experiencing frustrations in their health are going to experience more, it, it also is very correlated with anxiety. So a lot of women experience more anxiety in menopause. It's just, it's like one of the primary markers is just more anxiety. Even if you have not been an anxious person before and alcohol is just going to light a match on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, this is, this kind of dovetails into like a moderation question because mm-hmm. there's a lot of conflicting information when it comes to moderate drinking and I and the health benefits, not the health benefits. And my sense is that at least part of the problem is the line between moderate drinking and heavy drinking is so thin and it's a slippery slope. Yeah. But moderate alcohol consumption for women has been defined as up to one drink per day. And I and I'm not trying to trivialize one drink, but I know like, like a lot of my clients, they they find it hard to have just one cookie and then they, you know, open up the bag. And I see that yeah. happens a lot with alcohol. Yeah. And I'm just going to give a little context. According to the North American Menopause Society, consuming two to five drinks a day during menopause is considered excessive and may harm a woman's harm a woman's health. Drinking any amount of alcohol is linked to an increased risk of certain cancers. We know in menopause, alcohol makes breasts denser, which can yep. increase breast cancer. But yep. there's also esophageal cancer, colon cancer. And I know you've been researching this a lot too. And I also want to say the Center for Disease Control, the CDC defines one drink as one and a half fluid ounces of 80 proof distilled al- alcohol, five fluid ounces of wine. Which, eight, do you know how small that is? That's that's why I'm saying this. Five I'm ounces you, of wine is tiny. That's why I wanted to, I'm glad you said that because I think people think I'm having a glass, but it's like actually three glasses, right? It would be like two fingers of wine in a wine glass. Oh my God. That's my, I I don't drink, but I, oh my God. I feel like people get like four times that much. So that's just, oh, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Eight fluid ounces of malt liquor and 12 fluid ounces of regular beer at an alcohol content of about 5%. So what are your thoughts on alcohol for moderation around, you know, moderate drinking? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have 
any sort of problem with people drinking at all. I just feel like they need to know what is what they're actually what they're doing. Kind of like informed consent about alcohol and we haven't really had that for a long time because the big alcohol has been now has come out that they wrote and created and directed and approved a lot of the messaging that was put out there about wine being healthy for the heart and wine being a great way to relax and wine moderate the idea that of moderate drinking itself and so i would say to women who are struggling with the symptoms of menopause alcohol will certainly any amount of alcohol is going to certainly exacerbate every single one of those symptoms. First and foremost, because it jacks up your sleep. We didn't even talk about that, but that is the number one thing. And that applies to everybody, but women in menopause, in the menopausal years, sleep is often a a big issue and you don't need any more problems. Alcohol one drink of alcohol will disrupt your sleep considerably. There's a great, you should probably link it up in your notes about the Andrew Huberman podcast on alcohol is really helpful information about the true impact of it on your body. Okay. So not to be, it's not because I I don't think, I think drinking's bad or because I think people who drink are bad. It's more Alcohol is not friendly to menopausal bodies. Like it is, you can tolerate it a little bit better when you're younger, but it is very unfriendly to the the ways that our body changes in menopause. Impacts hormones, it impacts sleep, it impacts mood. And like we we are, I I, I always say I'm like a, a finely calibrated machine. <laughs> like I have to have Ugh, you pull one string and like a lot of things fall apart, right? So if I was someone who was wondering about this, I would take a two to three week break from alcohol and see how your symptoms improve. I wouldn't a week isn't isn't enough. Two weeks is probably the minimum. And if you can do a month, great. Moderate drinking, so there's conflicting information because the CDC will say one drink per day is what is moderate for women. And then you have that other stat about two to five drinks being like considered heavy use. Heavy yeah. for menopausal women. But but in the past three years, it's come out to, that there's no amount of drinking is safe for your health. So the safe level of drinking is actually zero. <clears throat> so I just, I, uh, that's like all I have to say is, is there's no morality issue here. Again, there's no, like, if you do it, you're bad. I get why people would drink. I get that people love wine. I get that they love the ritual of drinking in certain occasions, but drinking as sort of de facto, this is what I do when I have dinner on any night of the week is is not going to work the same way it used to in your 20s and 30s when you're in your menopause years. It's really going to jack you up. Yeah. And I I surveyed my community about what they wanted to know for this season. And several people said that giving up alcohol 
ended their hot flashes. Yeah. And so it's like, it oh makes my God. complete sense. Yeah. I was like, yeah, because the stress on your body, the blood sugar deregulation contributes to hot flashes, all that stuff. So yeah. that's another plug. So there's a rise in people who are sober curious. I would love your thoughts on this trend. And you said, I love, do you have any advice for people who are like, this conversation has really got them thinking? Mm-hmm. I know you said two to three weeks to give up. Do you have any thoughts on sober curious and any other yeah. beginning steps? Yeah, yeah. So I think the sober curious, we'll call it a movement, is great because any it, in when I got sober ten years ago, there was one conversation. It was if you were an alcoholic, you ha- you needed to stop drinking. But if you were not, if you were a normie, you were fine, and it didn't really matter how much you drank. If you didn't fall into the alcoholic category, y- you were fine, and if you were going to get sober. It was sober and you were going to go to AA and you were going to have to go to meetings for the rest of your life. And that was the path. That is not the world we are in 10 years later. And that's amazing. There are people talk about alcohol more. Alcohol as just a discussion point, like, are you, what is your relationship to alcohol is a question that would get asked now commonly that doesn't get asked that never would have been asked before. Like my friends would rather talk about anything than talk about drinking because it was, it was just, we protected it so much, right? Now people are having those conversations. This generation that's coming up drink less than or drinking less than than Gen X. So I think it's millennials drink less than Gen X, certainly. And then, you know, the Gen Z is like not even on the cusp of, well, I don't know how high they go, but I think of my daughter as Gen Z. And so she's not of drinking age yet, but they're less interested in alcohol. So I think that's all an effect of this talking more about alcohol, about sobriety, about sober curiosity, about taking breaks from drinking. There are now like four months out of the year that have sober themes. So there's dry January, there's dry July, there's sober October. People will do experiments while they'll they'll stop drinking and it doesn't have to be because it can be based on their their health interests or just a challenge, right? It doesn't have to be because you have a problem. Whereas before, the only reason you would ever think about your alcohol use or try to moderate it was because you had a problem. So I think sober curiosity is amazing. I think it opens the door for a lot of people to look at their drinking that would never qualify for the rooms of AA or that maybe don't even need to stop and be sober completely. They don't have to have 100% abstinence, but they can look at their drinking in a mindful way and say, is this working for me? Do I want this? Do I like it? Is it just something I'm doing? I mean, you often don't know. So many people will never understand how drinking is actually impacting them because they they have never taken a long enough break from it to feel Mm. what it's like to not do it, right? It's like if you have had this baseline of sugar for the past 10 years, which alcohol is, you don't know what it feels like to not be doing it. You don't know what it's like to truly have your whole brain function, to have your full capacity on a Sunday morning because most Saturday nights say you stay up and you have three glasses of wine with your partner and you watch a movie. You just don't know what you're not, you don't know what you're missing out on. Like you don't know, there's the there's the known things, the people that have problematic drinking kind of know 
the, th- the ways that they're being impacted, but the people who are more in that gray area don't even really know how they're being impacted. So I think the sober curious thing is excellent because it allows people to have a conversation without making it a big deal. Yeah, it opens up the binary of addict or not, right? Yes, <laughs> exactly. So that so in, on that front, I think it's great. I think the the best way to well, there's there's an article that I will point people to, which Cheryl Strayed wrote a piece in her Substack newsletter, which is called Dear Sugar. And I believe it's paid. So I don't know if there's a paywall against it. You might want to check. But she wrote a piece called a, The Problem Without a Problem. And it was her response to someone who wrote in concerned about their drinking. And Cheryl has been on her own journey of evaluating her drinking. And she wrote about that, about how she was one of those people that had never really had and big outward consequences of, because of her drinking. And no one ever said anything to her about it. It was never going to be a, a problem, you know, to, to her or looking in from the outside. No one would ever say anything. But she drank wine sort of every night, last two, sometimes three, and she loved it. She said, I love drinking. I can't imagine giving it up. But then she had like a health thing go on. She got COVID and she kind of just, this voice came to her and was like, drink less. And she followed that and learned all kinds of interesting things about who needs to quit drinking, who doesn't. And this whole sort of false binary, the real impact of drinking, what healthy drinking actually looks like. And so she's basically down to nothing. And she talks about that. And and she didn't have to go through like what I had to go through was to get sober and go into a recovery process because she didn't have the problem that I have. So I want to say all of that to say, you don't need to worry that if you look at your drinking, you are going to have to take on some label or that you're going to have to go to meetings for the rest of your life or that you're going to have to to be sober, call yourself sober. There are there's a big gray area, gray area in there. And the best way to take a look at it is to not drink for a period of time, but not just not drink, to talk about what you're going through as you're not drinking. So maybe do it with a friend, maybe join a group. There's a there's a group that I learned about from Cheryl called Sunnyside. And it's for more moderate drinking. So it's people that are just curious about like mindful drinking. It's about it's not about total abstinence, although I, I guess there's some people on there who are abstinent. But it's a community for people who want to be mindful about their drinking. So go to places where you can have these conversations because a lot of people in our lives may not be willing to have these conversations because they want to protect their own right to drink. It's still a touchy subject for people, you know? Yeah. And we'll link to all of those in the show notes, the Huberman, Cheryl's piece and Sunnyside. But also Laura has the Luckiest Club, which she should plug. I've taught there. I love the people in the Luckiest Club. Yes. And I, I yeah. feel like it's a low risk way to explore just because you don't have to be sober to be. In- you don't have to be sober, but we are an abstinence based community. So yeah. you're welcome to be there and then listen and learn for people who are trying to get sober. But we we are a place where we say the requirement to be there is any amount of desire to get and stay sober. So 
there's no requirement. Like there's no like if you aren't sober within six months or in a year, then you don't get to be a member here. It's more like that is because it's a very different conversation to talk to people who have an alcohol use disorder. Yeah. Versus someone who just doesn't, it's like a lifestyle change. Like they're just, it's not working for them. They're, they're different conversations. Yeah. Um, yeah. You had an excellent piece. Everyone check out Laura's Substack love story about kind of the continuum of re- like recovery and sobriety. Like they're, yeah. di- they can be different processes for different mm-hmm. people depending on. Yeah. I some- think it's called the false, the false binary of problematic drinking. Yeah. I love that you mentioned connection too, because I think, in, again, in America, it's like everything, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do everything mm-hmm. individual versus like you can't get through this stuff, whether it's food, alcohol, overworking, anything. You need a, a healthy voice of support and sharing yeah. what you said, sharing what you're going through. I think that's so important, like to realize yeah. you're not alone. Because it is a big deal. Like alcohol is a big part of our lives in our culture. And so not drinking it can bring up some stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, can, it just can, you know. I, my my fiance stopped in 2020 because he read my book and then he and he's pretty health conscious so he was just like I don't want to do this to myself anymore. And he is the rare bird that just stopped and was like I'm good. But he also has me as a partner so like he has incentive. <laughs> well, no, but it was, it, it was, no, I don't, it wouldn't have lasted for him to all this time, but it, but more, more so, I mean, like, I'm not pushing on him to drink. There's no, there was no like conversation or processing that needed to happen in, in our house. But I bring him up because most people, it's a little bit more than that. Like they, yeah. they want to, you know, if, if you are in a, a partnership where both of you drink together and it's kind of a thing that you do and you, a ritual that you have, it's going to sh- change a little bit, you know, when you don't do it. If your drinking habits are the same, oftentimes also there's a, one partner that never really drank that much and one, one who sort of does. And the person that stops, there's no impact because the other person never drank that much anyway. And so it's just like, oh, good. Okay. Now we're both just like not drinking much. Yeah. So just. I just want people to be aware that it's not a nothing. It's it it can be a big deal. Total. Oh my god. Totally. Totally. So I'm gonna just circle back a couple more questions. You had talked about like I'm so glad that uh, I'm not trying to get sober at this time. And having gone for me, having gone through the man- menopause transition, I was so grateful to have done my own truce with food work because the core of that is learning to be like a wonderful friend to yourself. That means compassion, honesty. I know you're big on that. Mm-hmm. And like encouragement with ourselves when we're struggling, right? It's easy to be nice to ourselves when things are going our way, but like when things are really hard. And for me, I I, I love that. I mean, I don't love that you're going through it, but that you brought up the body stuff because one year postpartum, I I was going to the doctor to get a referral for plantar fasciitis and I got on the scale like you. I hadn't weighed myself in like 10. Mm. I mean, the midwife center had me weigh myself when I was pregnant. But other than that, like and I was 30 pounds above my pre-pregnancy weight one year postpartum. And I was like, (gasps) but yeah, I I didn't spiral in shame because I had separated my worth. Yeah, I was curious, though, because I was like, I'm not binging. I'm not emotionally eating. But ultimately, I was able to like challenge like. Okay, because I, I had plantar fasciitis, I had low immunity, I had insomnia. That was my the biggest mm. symptoms. I didn't have hot flashes. 
And then I also, the mood, I had the mood stuff going on. So I was like, I also was like curious and I know that like weight and health overlap in some places. So Mm -hmm. I was able to get curious and have that kind of compassion. And you had mentioned being compassionate towards yourself. And like, we talked about some of the, okay, I had to go to the other extreme of like, maybe I was weighing myself and looking at my food, but what, what emotional strategies have you been able to use because of recovery and sobriety during this time? Great question. Yes. Yes. One of them, the biggest, biggest one for me is writing things down journaling. And it sounds so boring and so almost cliche, but I'm telling you that has been my biggest tool for anything emotionally challenging that I go through, but for this too. Writing down the thoughts that are going on in my head, how I'm feeling about it, the way things are changing, the like emotional ride it's taking me on. It just helps so much to get it out of your body. And when I get it out of my body and onto the paper, I can see how mean my thoughts are. And that helps me go, oh, I see what's going on. I I see what's going on. I see that this is like a coping strategy. I can see that I'm trying to get control over something that I can't control. So that's one. Another one is a pra- is a practice of like goes back to the control thing is this practice of surrendering to things I can't control, which is a very critical part of sobriety. I'm sure people have heard the serenity prayer. It's often attributed to A, but it's not, it doesn't come from A at all. I just happened to say it in there, but God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, wisdom to know the difference. If there's one piece of like spiritual advice that I think is the catch all for anything that we're coming up against that is painful, it's that. Realizing that I am going through a major life transition that much of which that I can't control. Like this is the the nature of bodies of life is change and it moves towards entropy. Like we're all dying. And, And that sounds so morose, but like that actually helps me a lot. It's like, I am in an, I am it goes back to the conversation that you and I have were having about not everything is open anymore. And I think, although that sounds depressing in a way, I think that's why people that get older are that's like the happiest years of their life because they're not they're they're accepting where they are and and because the idea that the future is wide open, that everything is possible, they don't appreciate what's actually happening now when we feel that way, right? Because there's something to strive towards. There's another direction to go to. Mm. We have all these options open. So am I picking the right one? There's always, you know, I can have a do-over. It's very not present-oriented. You're living in the future or you're living in the past. So how that impacts me now and how that applies to this is, Realizing that I am just, I am part of a process that is going to happen no matter what. I'm going to keep getting older. My body is going to keep changing. And there are things there, I can either approach that with a lot of resistance and a lot of force and pushback, 
or I can approach it like I had to approach sobriety, which was with a lot more grace, a lot more compassion, and a lot more acceptance of just like where I am. That was the only way to get through sobriety was to keep it in the day, to not get tripped up on what might happen down down the road, to take care of myself in the now. Sometimes that me- that means going for a long walk, but I'm not doing it so that I can <laughs> like burn calories. I'm doing it so that I can mentally take care of myself, so that I can like be present for my daughter, or make it through the rest of the day. Right. So it's just a shift in priorities when you're when you have learned when you've had to go through something that requires you to keep it in the day like sobriety does you learn that skill and you learn that there is that is the only thing that's ever happening right now is what is is this moment and so i think a lot of <clears throat> when we're in pain or when we're when our bodies are like feel out of control the scariest thought that we have is this is never going to end it's never going to change. And so it's really helped me in this process to remember that that's all a future trip. The only thing I can control is what's happening right now. So like that also pulls you into your body and it's like, are you hungry? Are you tired? Are you thirsty? Do you need to move? And and that's just such a different orientation than like, oh my God, I ate this. And and I'm gaining weight, and now I have to go like work out for t- two hours because I'm going to gain the weight. Blah, 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 blah. Like, just puts you in, and and that is all about future tripping, right? I'm gonna get fat. I'm gonna get uncomfortable. I'm gonna hate my like. That's all out there. Yeah. But if you, it's helped me so much to just. There's a lot of things I'm saying all at once, but it's helped me so much to basically it comes down to bring it back into the present moment. Like what's happening right now? Write some things down. That's how I can actually figure out what's happening. How do I feel? Like what's really going on? Because this isn't about my body. This is about wanting control over something I can't control. I freaking love that you said that because in Truths with Food, what I help clients connect to is when they start feeling fat, I'm like, fat is not a feeling, but they're able to connect. They're feeling fat when they start taking risks in their life, when they mm. when they feel out of control, right? Like, oh. in essence, so like one of my clients was like, oh my God, I'm realizing all my body stuff's, she had her own business. She's like, all my body stuff's coming out because I just put myself out there. Yeah. And there's such relief in realizing it's not about the body. It's about mm-hmm. the risk that you want to take or you're not taking because you think you'll have thin privilege or less risk if you take it. The other huge thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's so fun for people. to, And I feel like this is where I get frustrated when so much of the body image conversation is about, well, like loving, like loving how you look. And I'm like, but it's this deeper, like wanting control over, even though we really want to take risks at the same time. So it's like really connecting that like, oh, when does my body stuff come up or my desire to drink come up? Like, what are those triggers? The other thing I love that you just said right now was like, okay, we're, we're, we're all dying where this is menopause. When you're writing in the now, you're all and you're also being with what's real, which is part of why I love your your writing, is you're not making it about you. And so much around drinking and body and food is like, 
I'm the problem. I have shame versus, wait, this is the reality of what's happening. (laughs) I'm going through a very human reaction to a a challenging environment. Yeah. But that is a challenging reality. That everyone, so rather than isolating ourselves in shame, it's like, yeah. Everyone is going to go through this because I think that's where, at least in my work, it's the shame that gets people like, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. My body's changing and it's it's my fault. I didn't restrict yeah. enough when it's like, no, no, no. Actually, that's not going to work for you anymore. But your point about like this, let's be here with the facts, I think can help us separate. This isn't a me thing. It's a universal experience and a, like you said, a normal human reaction. <laughs> yeah, that's totally how it had to work for sobriety too. It's like I could I always say I couldn't hate myself into getting sober. Yes. And you can't ha- hate yourself into going through menopause and and like being okay. Yeah. It's going to you're going to make it more painful. The more, harder you clamp down on it and resist the reality of what's happening, the the more painful it's going to be. And also like I, I I couldn't get that there with sobriety and I tried and I tried and I tried. So it's it's a it's like a portal that we have to go through where we come up against our uh, human limits. We just come up against our limits and there aren't a lot of places there where we have to do that. Yeah. It's just, w- there's a lot of ways through and around uh, these, these thresholds, but this and one, I, this is one of them that, that isn't, it's like an equalizer. Yes. Yes. And I love that you use the word limits and even talking about people older in life, because like, again, I'm raising a four-year-old right now and I'm realizing how he may have a temper tantrum against my boundaries, but me having the boundary actually makes him feel safe, right? Like I can handle his tantrum, whatever it is. And I think we're like that with adults, like as like oh, adults. Yeah. Like if if someone says write anything, it's like ah, give me some constraints. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and creativity yeah. thrives on constraints. I think knowing about our blood sugar and gut health gives us constraints of like, oh, this can show me what works. And I think limits aren't necessarily a bad thing, and they can be no. that fire in perimenopause yeah. and menopause of like the pattern of being mean to myself, trying to whip myself into shape through hatred and shame, it's just not like you're going to hit a wall. And that's a good thing because it's going to force you to change. It's a good thing. It's like, I, that's, I don't trust anybody who hasn't hit that wall at least once because they, I mean that seriously because they they don't have compassion (laughs) for the human experience. Like you're not really talking about the reality for for most people, if you're still talking in those terms that where you think that you can control everything, right? It's just a matter of willpower. Like that doesn't, you're not living in the world of of people's humanity. You're just not. And you know, you're going to hit your own at some point, probably. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I know people are like very young or very new into their coaching career because it's kind of like anything's possible. And I'm like, oh yeah, you just have to dream it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. One last question. You tend to be ahead of the curve with knowing how norms are changing. What predictions do you have for alcohol and menopause in the future? Great question. And thank you. I think it's going to go. So I think the younger generations are going to drink less and more. We'll say mindfully. They're drinking. Isn't going to be the like de facto thing that they, that they just do. So, and I think it will be because the 
this generation that's going, say, into menopause now or is in those years or just past those years, because we lived in alcohol-soaked culture for longer, I think it'll take a bit longer. But it's also the population that is seeking recovery the most. That's like by far the largest population in my community. And so I think we will start to see a huge, continue really to see a huge sea change in how in, in the sort of conversations that these, that women of this age have around alcohol, I think it's going to be a lot more, I think there's going to be kind of like a revolution for that, that generation around menopause and alcohol and that it's not an answer that it is adding gasoline to this fire that there, because what the the what we're talking about like what we were just talking about this sort of portal that you walk through and this this is like an initiation i think that menopause is is an, is one of the initiations that women go through in their lives and i think we will go through it differently and there will be more consciousness because of it as we rely on alcohol less. And I think it will be more consciousness through it and because of it, because alcohol is, is going to be seen as distracting from that process too. So I I think it's it's an exciting time. I think it'll be slow moving. I think we're not going to see, you know, huge, huge, massive shift in that all of a sudden, but it's already started. Women are leading this sort of open, inclusive, out loud conversation about recovery and not drinking, women are leading that, mm. at least in the US. And I think that that will significantly change how we experience menopause. I love that. It's like, if I, I just love that. Because it, 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 instead of people turning to drinking or even eating disorders actually start to yeah. increase, right? it's like we can actually talk about the threshold that this is, right? Yes. You can get, and like, and the power in that. Cause that's another thing you need around thresholds is you need ritual. You need, like ritual. you said, witnessing, like, mm -hmm. yes, this is happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so, there's such opportunity and power, like you just said, that can come from go from, from an initiation, right? It doesn't have to be, it's, it doesn't have to be a destruction, which, or it doesn't have to end at destruction, which it does for a lot of women. It does, yeah. you know, and 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 this these menopausal years are seen as sort of the end of end of something and only an end. And I don't, I think alcohol has contributed to that more significantly than people realize. And I think without it or less of it in that process, there's going to be a different experience. Yes, I love that. Anything I didn't ask you that you would like to add? <laughs> no, this is great as usual. Yeah, you're gonna have to come back on because I know people are gonna want to know how you're working through your body stuff and your food. Yeah, stuff. I'll have more to say about that in like a year. I'm very yeah. much kind of in it now. I'm I'm not like really suffering, but it's a it's been a surprising thing to have resurface. Yeah. So. I just love, though, that rather than ignoring it, you're actually taking it and connecting it to your health. Like a more, because again, our generation defined health as just weight, but yeah. you're like, no, it's so much more than that. So you're on the right track. You're going to be fine. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And we will link to all your stuff, but tell people where they can find you. Yeah. My website is lauramccowan.com. My Substack, which is where I'm writing, doing all my writing now is uh, Love Story. It's on Substack. 
uh, you can find that from my website though. And I'm really the only social media I'm on is Instagram and you can find me there by my name. Yeah. And And then my books, I have two books out there. Yeah. Tell, tell people. I have, uh, we are the luckiest, which is the sobriety memoir, uh, that came out in 2020 and then push off from here is a foundational sort of structure book of how you can approach change. It's, it's focused on sobriety, but it really relates to any kind of chance of transformational change, uh, that you go through. And your next book is coming out. My next book is uh, another memoir. It will be about relationships, about love addiction. I call it my second sobriety. Um, <laughs> and that will be out in 2025, though. So it's a ways out. Okay, good. I'm sure that date will come fast. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Laura. We Thank covered a lot you. of ground. 